Hi, how are you? Good. This is a wonderful setting. I just love this. I was uh, speaking in South Africa a couple years ago, and, and actually my wife and I are headed back there um, this November uh, for a couple of weeks, and everything is kind of in the outdoors there. Uh, they have All the buildings have doors and windows, but they never close them, so they're always open. And uh, I was uh, speaking, uh, and the, the story I'm going to tell you at 9 o'clock tonight is my 9-11 testimony, and just a little tease about that. Uh, I was originally scheduled to be the co-pilot on the very first airplane that was hijacked on 9-11. And so if you don't know any more of the story, that's all I'm going to tell you. Uh, but uh, at 9 o'clock, we're going to show you a wonderful award-winning film, and then I'm going to tell you, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. But as you can imagine, it's very emotional, very powerful testimony. And I was sharing my testimony in South Africa. And uh, in this wonderful day, it was about 72 degrees out, all the windows and doors were open. And right at the most poignant part of my story, a bird flew in and landed on the podium, like right here. And I, I felt like Snoopy a little bit, you know, and, and his little friend Woodstock, because it was a little bitty bird like that. And so I'm trying to ignore the bird, right? So I, I stepped away, and the bird, the bird flew over next to me and landed at my feet. So now I'm, I'm telling this portion of the story where half the people are in tears, and everybody's attention is on what? The bird. the bird, right? And I'm trying to ignore the bird. I thought about kicking the bird, but then that wouldn't go over very well. So I, I kept hopping around the room, and the bird kept following me. So finally, I just had to acknowledge the bird and, and work the bird into the story. And I think he got bored of the story after a while, and he finally flew away. But um, all I've got to worry about this evening is the, uh, is the bugs, all right? And they're a lot easier to deal with than that, that bird was. So I'm really glad to be here. Uh, let me tell you a little bit of my background. Uh, I, uh, we, my wife and I travel all around the world uh, telling uh, a lot of different stories, mainly my 9-11 story, but we also uh, are trying to equip parents to train a new generation of courageous, Christ-like, character-healthy leaders. And uh, we do that uh, in various different ways at churches, different gatherings, homeschooling conferences. Uh, I've been to Governor's Prayer Breakfast. Uh, my wife and I were on the Glenn Beck TV show a couple of times. We've been on with Dr. Dobson a couple of times. What a dear guy. Uh, I think Dr. Dobson turns 80 years old this year. And uh, I'm going to see him again uh, next month. Uh, and I haven't seen him for a couple of years since we were on his radio program yet last. But he's a really sweet guy. And I wish he was my dad. I really do. Uh, I, would, I would trade in a minute. and I'll, Maybe I'll tell you more of that story after a while. But... Dr. Dobson's a really sweet guy. I'm going to see him again at an event on June 21st. So that's coming up in about three and a half weeks. And this is a prayer request. Um, it's been a very tumultuous uh, political season, and it's going to get even more so as we head towards November. But uh, I got invited last week to uh, a closed-door event in New York City with, uh, I think there's going to be about 400 uh, conservative evangelical leaders from around the country that are meeting in a closed-door session with Donald Trump. And uh, they wanted to, he called the meeting, I think they called the meeting, it kind of came together. And uh, I think everybody wants to get a seat at the table and kind of figure out who's who, right? And so I don't know exactly how I got an invitation to it, but I did. And uh, so I'm going to go be a fly on the wall at that meeting and just kind of figure out uh, what this guy is all about and, and listen to some really... Uh, prominent uh, conservative Christians, Dr. Dobson will be there and some others, uh, kind of ask him questions and, and get a feel for who he is uh, away from the microphone. So uh, just pray about that. Cause, and if you've got a question you'd like to ask Donald Trump, come to see me at the table. All right. And if I ever get a chance to ask him a question, I'll ask him your question. How's that? All right. Because I got too many to ask him. 
so my background goes like this. As Pastor told you, I'm a pilot for American Airlines. I'm still working for American Airlines. Uh, half the time, I don't know what time zone I'm in. I think I'm back on the east coast of the U.S. right now. Uh, but yesterday I was in Paris. I fly the, the Boeing 777, and uh, we, we fly uh, to Europe and South America all around the world in that airplane. I've been with American for 25 years now, and uh, I love what I do for a living. Uh, but I, what I'm really passionate about is our ministry, and I'm the president of Character Health Corporation. And you can find us at characterhealth.com, and just come to the table. All of our stuff has our website written on it, and there's really a lot of terrific resources there for parents, for marriages, for youth discipleship. Because I really feel like God spared my life on 9-11 for a reason. And that reason wasn't just to go back to the, the ho-hum existence. That reason was to reach the American family because I think American families are in crisis today. And you don't need to go very far to realize that, that they really are in crisis. And we're going to talk about that in this first session. And then we're going to build upon it tomorrow morning. And then tomorrow at 11 o'clock we're going to build a really great case for our own Christian growth. But really we're going to focus in on the family and where the family is today. So with all of that said, uh, my background goes like this. A pilot for American Airlines. I pastored a church for 10 years, Cornerstone Baptist Church in Topsom, Maine. I was the founding pastor of that church. Very similar history to your church here. We started out meeting in a rented facility uh, for a while, and we did that for about three or four years. And then we put together enough money to build a building, and we built our first brick-and-mortar building uh, up there in Topsom, Maine. A lovely couple across the street from where we built the church literally gave us 73 acres. They, they gave us, they, they charged us $1,000 an acre, all right? And the property just down the road, went, uh, three acres went for $750,000. Okay, so they gave it to us. And so that was a God thing, all right? We built a church on it. The other 65 acres are still sitting there, you know, waiting to be used someday for the Lord. I loved uh, being a pastor of the church, but uh, being a church planter, uh, and uh, being a kind of an idea guy, after about 10 years, it was sort of time uh, for me to go on with this ministry that the Lord had set up to American families and hand the church off to the next guy. And so we did. It was a very smooth transition. Uh, and the Lord's still using that church and still helping us reach families around the country. Uh, I have uh, a, a couple of degrees. I, I have a master's degree in theology, another one in Christian ministry. Uh, and I have an earned doctorate. I earned my doctorate writing on the role of parents in the character development of children. So that's really my passion, is the cross-section of parenting and character development. And so both of those things I speak on, I lecture on, on frequently, and hopefully have put to practice in my own family. I have eight children, four boys, four girls. Uh, four of them are married and on their own now. Two of them are what I call tweeners. They're out of the house, but they're not quite married yet. And I still have two at home, two boys, a 14-year-old and a 17-year-old boy. So to us, with eight children, having only two at home, we feel like it's a vacation almost every night. You know, My wife wants to eat out all the time, and, and uh, so I try to oblige her as, as often as we can because she's earned it. Uh, and so uh, with that being said, uh, you know, I've worn a lot of hats over the years, but I think Pastor really kind of hit the nail on the head. My passion is my ministry. And so we're working towards a, a place where I can hang up my hat at American Airlines and say thank you very much. Uh, and not be a pilot anymore, but uh, we're not quite there yet. We've grown the ministry, but it's not quite at the place where it can support us uh, just yet. So uh, God still has me with a couple of different pokers in the fire, and that's fine, because that's kind of the way I was wired. Uh, I'm riddled with ADD, and uh, this is a very bad setting for me, okay? Too many squirrels out here. And, uh, but actually, ADD at this age comes in handy. All right, because it gives me more energy than I should have at, at my age, but it is very distracting, and I'm, I'm going to try to focus on you and not 
the little toad that's right down here. And you're laughing, but there is a little toad right down here. He's very interesting. Anyway, I digress. Okay, so let's talk about Now, I've got, I've got something for you. I'm going to take one of these uh, out for myself, and I've got only 35 of these. I know there's more than 35 of us here, but I also know that uh, this is not a really a great place to take notes. And so those of you who love to take notes, take a handout. And if you've got something to write with, good for you. If you don't, just show it to a neighbor. I'm going to write some stuff up on the board. But if I could have a couple volunteers to, to hand out these handouts, and whoever gets one gets one. If you don't need one or want one, just let it pass by. Uh, and uh, we're going to talk about something that I'm very passionate about, which is the American family. We're going to weave all this in with the Word of God, obviously. That's got to be our cornerstone and where we come from. Uh, what I'm going to share in this session and the next three sessions is going to be a little bit different. The 9-11 testimony is a lot different tonight, it, but it's going to feel a lot like a sermon because I'm going to open up the Word of God and I'm going to preach out of the Word of God. I'm a, I'm a preacher. Uh, tonight, tomorrow morning, and the two sessions is going to be a little bit different. Um, we're going to talk about the Word of God. We're going to open up our Bibles, but it's not going to be turned to this passage. And I'm not going to exegete the three points that all start with the letter P. Actually, we're going to jump around a little bit uh, because we're going to talk about what does it look like. We want to answer the question for you and your family, what does growing in Christ look like? What does having what I call a character-healthy family look like? Today, we're obsessed with physical health and well-being and emotional health and well-being, but we never talk about the character of our health. And we've got not a race problem in this country. We don't have an economic problem. We don't have a gender problem. We don't have a religious problem in this country. We have a character problem in this country. You understand me on that? Everything that we see going on around us, all of the turmoil and all of the issues that we're being bombarded with as families boil down to character. And many times the character is something as simple as discipline or courage or love or compassion or respect or responsibility. There's a whole lot of character qualities that get impacted that many of us have abandoned. Uh, I call it the new virtue these days. And the new virtue these days is not whether you should or shouldn't do something. It's whether you can or can't do something. Do you understand the difference between those two? We live now in the can and can't world, all right? And I'm not talking about your abilities. I'm talking about the can and can't world is this. Uh, we, the first question we ask before we make a decision, before we behave, before we act or, or, or express ourselves some way, the first question we ask is, who's watching? Can I get away with it? How much will it cost me and will I get caught? That's the world of can and can't. Now put that in the political bubble that we're in in the middle of right now in this election year, all right? And look at how many of the candidates deal in that world of can and can't. The excuse many times is, well, everybody else did it. Okay, sound familiar to you? All right, well, what would you say to your children if they came back with the excuse, but everybody else is doing it? Are you going to jump off a bridge too? All right, and you can hear your own parents talking to you, right? And so it's that, that idea of just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do something. And the Word of God is always talking about the should and shouldn't questions of life, not the can and can't questions of life. The fundamental question of our culture has changed over the last 45 years now. It used to be the question used to be the question why. Now the question is why not? Why wouldn't I do that? Everybody else is doing it. I, am I going to get caught? How much trouble will I get into? And so everybody's driven by the why not questions of life instead of the why questions and the should questions of life. 
And so we're going to weave those two concepts in together, and we're going to talk about how to raise a healthy family in the 21st century when you're being bombarded by everything under the sun. It's really not as difficult as you might think. And so I want to come alongside. God spared my life not to sell you something or not just to lecture you. He wants Steve and Megan Scheibner to come alongside with you on this parenting journey. And I'll talk about that more in the next couple of sessions. So if you've got your hand out in front of you, I'm going to share with you some excerpts, some of the high points of the course that my wife and I have created called The Nine Practices of the Proactive Parent. Now, this course started a number of years ago when I was asked to write a leadership course for the Navy. And I was a naval commander. I was working as a reserve officer, a part-timer. I was working for the active duty captain on the base. And so I would come in once a month, and he'd give me a pet project and send me along. And, and I'd come back the next month and report back to him, and he'd give me another project, and I'd work on it. And it went on for a number of months. And after about six months of this getting a new project from him, once I was sitting out in his outer office, and I was waiting to get called in. And it was a little past my appointment time, and, and uh, sooner or later, this couple came out of his office, a man and a woman, both enlisted in the Navy, and, and they had tears coming down their cheeks. And I thought, oh my word, that's not what, normally what you see coming out of the captain's office. And I thought, uh, this is, I picked a bad day to come and see him, right? So I went into his office, and he looked miserable as well. And, and so uh, he had me sit down, and I, I said, Captain, I said, is everything okay? And he said, well, no, not really. He said, I, I just had to fire those two. And uh, they were pretty upset, and so inquiring minds want to know, right? So I asked him, I said, well, what did they do? What did they do? And he said, well, they, they're married to each other. They have a nine-month-old. He said, they decided to go out to dinner and shopping and leave the nine-month-old old, old child at home alone. No babysitter. Now, the baby started to cry. The neighbors heard it. They looked out in the driveway. No car. After a while, they came over and knocked on the door. Nobody answered. They called the police, who called the fire department, who broke down the door. Three hours later, our young couple comes in, right? The baby was fine, by the way. But three hours later, they came in, and they were confronted with their irresponsibility. What was their reaction to their irresponsibility? Hey, what's the big deal? Why are you coming down on us? Everybody else does it. And so as I was, he was explaining this to me, I guess I, I have a natural smile on my face. I, I was sort of smiling at him. And he said, Scheibner, he goes, why are you laughing at me? And I said, well, no disrespect, sir. I said, but you're asking the wrong question. I said, in the last 10 minutes, you've probably asked 10 times the why question. Why would they do it? Why wouldn't they respond? Why were they irresponsible? Why, why, why? He kept asking. And I said, sir, in the last 45 years, the question has changed. The question has changed from why to why not. Now, who knows how many times this couple left that baby alone and got away with it? Who knows if anybody else was doing it? But their perception was that everybody else was getting away with it, so why shouldn't they? Now, the Navy, the military, has a very elaborate discipline system they put people through. It takes a number of months to get through it. They want to get your thinking right, okay? And this couple never turned the thinking corner. And so after three or four months of going through the system, the last guy they see before the unemployment line was my boss, that captain that day. And he said to me, he said, Steve, I was prepared to give them a second chance if they were only a little repentant. He said, but they weren't. They were just as defiant with me as they'd been all the way along. He said, I had no choice but to let him go. And he really saw that as a failure, his failure. And uh, when I mentioned to him about the new virtue these days, about the should and shouldn't and the can and can't, he just lit up. And he said, you know what? He goes, you're absolutely right. He goes, all right, Scheibner. He goes, here's your next job. And by the way, it was the last job I ever got in the Navy. I had it for another 10 years. He said, here's your next job. 
He goes, I want you to write a leadership course. He said, I'm going to order people to come to it. All right? When you're a teacher and, you, and the guy you're working for says, I'm going to order people to come to it, I'm like, yeah. All right? And here's what he said to me. He said, I don't care if you do a Bible study with these people. I'm going to make them come. All right? Now, that was a pretty blank check. All right? Now, I knew that I couldn't do a Bible study with him because, by the way, this guy wasn't going to be around forever and he was going to get replaced and get replaced and get replaced. And so I put together a course that, quite honestly, I thought about 50% of the people would absolutely hate. And as people came through the course, they loved it. They wrote down the front and the back of the course critiques how much they loved it. Can I come back? Can I bring my family? This has been a life-changing experience. Could you make it longer? How many of you were in the military? All right, well, thank you for your service on Memorial Day, right? That's great to remember. How many of you ever went to a military class that you were forced to go to? I call it death by PowerPoint. (laughs) And you wrote on the course critique afterwards, could you please make this course longer? Anyone? (laughs) No, okay? I wrote the course, and so it it started to get some attention. And so the the people above me, they started to come to the course, and they said, we got to get more people to come to this course. We put 12,000 sailors through this course in eight years. I taught it 250 times. I loved it, right? Because we were making a difference in people's lives. Out of that course, called the Nine Practices of the Proactive Sailor, came the Nine Practices of the Proactive Parent. I just put chapter and verse back into it where it belonged the whole time. So what we're going to do now is we're going to do some of the highlights from these nine practices, all right? And uh, this one illustration I'm going to share with you, you're going to look at it. It's very revealing for us. But you're also going to think, I've got a teenager or a preteen that needs to see that. So I'm glad your young kids are here with you, all right? Because we're all going to be together on this. So let's start out at the beginning. I'm going to hit some of the pillars, some of the foundational stuff from these nine practices, all right? These are not the nine practices. It's simply the foundation they're built on. There are three pillars, three pillars of Christian living. Three pillars of having a healthy character like Christ had. Number one at the top of the list is this. We need to consistently elevate virtues above feelings. Consistently elevate virtues above feelings. We live in one of the most feelings-driven cultures the world has ever known. All right? Finish this statement for me, please. If it feels good, do it. Right? Don't think about it. Don't deliberate over it. Don't even count to ten. In fact, the more impulsive and the more impetuous you are these days in the decision-making process, the more likely this current culture is to reward you for your impulsive decision-making. If you're really good at it, we'll follow you around with a camera and we'll put it on TV and we'll call it what? Reality. There's nothing realistic about having a camera crew follow you your every move. (laughs) But that's the world we live in these days. I was at a church event, this is a couple of years ago now, I was at a church event on a Sunday sharing my 9-11 story. Pastor invited me and a, a couple of new people that week out to lunch. And so we were at this local restaurant, about a dozen of us sitting around a round table. And, and I was sitting next to a guy, and it was his first week at church. And, and so I just struck up a conversation with him. I said, you know, well, what do you do for a living? And he said, well, I'm a producer. And I, I said, well, producer of what? And he said, TV shows. Now, at that point, I had never met a TV producer before. I was pretty excited. I said, hey, you know, anything I've ever seen? And he was a little squirrely. He didn't want to say out loud. And I had to kind of pull it out of him. So after I got him to, to say, he said, well, I was the executive producer for the first uh, two seasons on a, a program called Jersey Shore. <laughs> now, if you know what I'm talking about, I'm sorry. <laughs> if you don't, good for you, right? <laughs> Jersey Shore is part of that garbage that was on MTV for a lot of years. And there are lots of other programs like Jersey Shore. Now, you're probably wondering, what was an executive producer 
for Jersey Shore doing in a church on Sunday. He was, re- he was down in the southeast of the U.S., and he was going looking for local color, right, at different places, church gatherings, different things, for his next reality show. You know where, like, moonshiners and swamp people and, you know where all those shows come from? Some guy's just traveling around looking for people that have an interest, Duck Dynasty, right? He's looking for people that have an interesting story to tell. He might turn it into a TV program. There might be one here today, I don't know, right? So, at any rate, straight out of his mouth, he told me what the premise of Jersey Shore was. And here's what he said. He said the cast members, and that was his word for it, he said the cast members got paid $150,000 a week, all right, a week to get drunk and act like a fool so we could follow him around with a camera and put it on TV. That was the premise of the show. Very successful show by TV standards, but in that little world that Hollywood creates, they cut out all of the consequences and only show you what they want you to see or your young people to see. So your young people are looking at that stuff, they're taking it in, and they're taking in this message We need to elevate feelings above virtues, right? Now, Disney's been at this for decades. The message of most Disney movies is this. Just follow your heart, right? Because your heart will never lead you astray. I could almost sing the little song right now. right? You can hear it going over and over in your head. Just follow your heart. Right? Because your heart will never lead you astray. Except we got a problem. Jeremiah 17.9 says what? The heart is what? It's desperately wicked. It's deceitful. It'll deceive even you. But you say, Steve, I felt so strongly. So what? (laughs) God says, who cares how you feel about it? Now, if how you feel squares with the word of God, great. That's a winning combination. Good for you. But if how you feel doesn't square with the word of God, we must abandon how we feel about it in favor of what? The word of God. That's why God gave us his word. All right? So that we can, we can navigate this world to the honor and the glory of God. So the very first of these three foundational pillars for these nine practices are, is elevating virtues like honesty, integrity, love, respect, compassion, diligence, discipline, courage, above how we might feel about it at the moment. It's work to do that. It takes a lot of discipline, that's another core value, to do that. All right? So again, We've got some work cut out for it. Moms and dads, you're kind of the guardians of that in your home, elevating virtues above feelings. Number two on the list is this, making God look great. Now, I've got several verses written down here. You can look them up later if you like. 1 Corinthians 10.31, though, is a very familiar verse to us. It says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to what? The glory of God, right? You know your Bible. Very good. 1 Corinthians 10.31. So if somebody would ask you, why are you here on this earth? Or, well, you know, why are you a believer in God? Well, I'm here to bring glory to God. I'm here to make God look great. Now, how can you make a great-looking God look greater? Every once in a while, somebody will say to me, Steve, how do you do that? And I go, well, let me put it a different way. Through your words, your choices, your deeds, your behavior, your actions, can you make a great-looking God look small and diminished? Sure you can. Just follow me around when I'm late and I'm in traffic. Okay? You know, God doesn't look so big at that point. Why? Because you see too much of me. And when you see too much of me, you see too little of God. See how that works? So God wants us to be transparent believers. You may have heard your pastor say that. You may have heard a television or radio preacher say, we need to be transparent. What does that mean? It means get out of the way. All right. It, the more of Steve you see, the less of God you see. 
The less of Steve you see, the more of God you see. Right? And that's a good thing. So you don't need to see me get angry or be harsh or, or be off my game. Right? I need to be reflecting Jesus, and he's great all on his own. It's just a matter of getting out of the way. Most of the problems in our lives come from what? Us just getting in the way. Our pride causes us to stumble. And so making God look great is all about being transparent. And it's interesting that Paul picks two of the most mundane things on the planet to illustrate his point, eating and drinking, right? We just did it a few uh, an hour ago. He did it earlier today. You're going to do it tomorrow morning. It, it, many times we don't even put any thought into eating or drinking. And Paul's point here is this. If you can bring honor and glory to God in the mundane, boring things that you don't put much thought into, think about how much glory and honor you could bring to God in the things that you're deliberate and intentional about, like your marriage, or like parenting, or your church, or serving God. Any of those things are things that we need to be intentional about, according to his word, how much glory we would bring to God in that process. So number one is elevating virtues above feelings. Number two is making God look great. And number three, to build out our foundation, is uh, training to be a blessing to others. Now, when I teach this point to parents, we talk about training children to be a blessing to others. But you know what? It's very difficult to train your children to be a blessing to others if you're not training to be a blessing to others yourself. Am I right about that? Because if you're not, if you say, do as I say and not as I do, you've become a hypocrite. And when you were young, you smelled a hypocrite a mile away and you didn't put up with it. And you know what? Your kids don't put up with it either. And so, rightly so, they smell a hypocrite a mile away. So mom and dad, they're not asking for perfection from you. Either is the Lord. He's just asking for us to strive together. The message I'm going to share at 11 o'clock tomorrow is a really, really powerful message about forgiveness and repentance and restoration. Because we do blow it. We blow it in this life, right? We blow it as kids. We blow it as parents. Is there a reset button? There is, and it's at 11 o'clock tomorrow, so we'll have to hold off on that, right? So... Uh, training to be a blessing to others. Now, where do I get that? Well, um, you know, do you wake up in the morning and, and look in the mirror and go, oh, I can't wait to be a blessing today to other people, you know? And so uh, hardly a day goes by that I think any of us have that thought. In fact, we're in this me, me, me world, right? Look out for number one, take care of yourself first, and you're bombarded with that message. Remember, uh, take care of your physical health and well-being and your emotional health and well-being. We're bombarded with that stuff all the time. It's called self-esteem. You know what? We got a lot of self-esteem, right? We need some God-esteem in all of this. That's what's really healthy for us. But in the midst of all of that self-esteem that we're getting bombarded with, and by the way, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be what? transformed, right, by the renewing of your mind. And so that's an ongoing thing. It's not a once and done deal. The conformity of this world is take care of you first. Don't worry about that other guy. Worry about you. The most satisfaction in life, the greatest self-esteem you can ever get is to learn to really truly be a blessing and a servant to other people. It goes against the grain of this current culture. My job for the rest of my life is to preach the message that goes against the grain of this current culture. I feel a little bit like Jeremiah from the Old Testament. All right? But I know you understand what I'm talking about. So where do we get all that? 
Well, Matthew 22, 36 through 39, very familiar passage to you. But it's one of those times where Jesus is being confronted by the Pharisees. It says the lawyers, right? But that's the Pharisees. And uh, they come up to him, and it even says what's going on in their heart at the beginning of the passage. It says they were, they were intending to trick him. And so they wanted to, to make him uh, look bad. And so they travel all this distance, these guys, right? And uh, they come up to Jesus, and they, and they greet him. They go, Rabbi, teacher, right? They flatter him. And they say, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, are you familiar with that passage now? Right? And, and Jesus uh, responds to it. But then he does what he's brilliant at. He, he not only answers their question with grace and dignity, but he also wrestles control back from them and teaches into it, which is one of the beautiful things about Jesus. So what's going on here? Well, these lawyers make this long-distance uh, journey to go uh, confront Jesus, and they, they start by flattering him. When they call him rabbi and teacher, that's not a sign of respect. They're doing that with contempt in their voices. You have to understand where they're coming from, right? But he's a dignified guy, very gracious to the Lord. And then they ask him a question that is intended to be an insult. Now, as we read it, you go, well, maybe they really did want to know what the greatest commandment in the law was. These guys all knew what the greatest commandment in the law was. Why did they know that? Because from the time they were all three years old and they were going to synagogue on Saturday, their synagogue teacher would say to them, what's the greatest commandment in the law? We learned this last week, didn't we? And they'd quote Deuteronomy chapter 6. And they'd say, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Good boy, you did it. And they'd give him a big hug and here's a gold star for you. you know. And that was something that you would teach a three-year-old, right? To ask a man of Jesus' caliber and stature, that question was meant to be smug and embarrassing and belittling. But with grace and dignity, our Lord answers the question. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6. He says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then Jesus does what he's really brilliant at. He wrestles control of the situation back, and he teaches into it. He makes application. What does he say next? He says, and the second commandment is what? It's like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. To be a blessing to others. And it smacks in the face of these guys that were only really a blessing to themselves and had contempt for everybody else. And Jesus says this to us today. Now, before we get too high on our horse and we go, you know what? I'm not like those Pharisees. Hang in there. That passage was inscripturated in the, in the Bible for all eternity. And it applies to us today because we can get very Pharisaical in our thinking, thinking that we kind of got it together and we've arrived. And just like those guys, we fall into the same trap. Because the answer to us is this. You can say you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength until you're blue in the face. But if you're not working at being a blessing to others on a continual basis all the time, you don't mean it. Ouch. <laughs> That's kind of convicting, isn't it? So I've disciplined myself this way. On the days that I shave... I don't shave every day. I get a couple days off. So when I shave and I'm in the mirror in the morning, I'm shaving. I'm saying, Lord, help me be a blessing to others today. Not just selective others, but everybody. Help me to have that attitude to be a blessing to others because I I don't want to fail this test. I don't want to be like those guys. I want to be like the guy you want me to be. And he's brought some real characters into my life that were hard to be a blessing to. But you know what? I remember what I said first thing in the morning. I remember that little prayer I had first thing in the morning. And I'm working at being a blessing to others. So that's why I'll go anywhere, anytime, 
to tell my story, right? Uh, and I love this setting. This is great. This is a memorable one, though. I've never been in an actual outdoor setting that was literally in the woods. And it's great, right? I'm glad that there are so many here because it's actually spread out more carnage for the bugs. Because <laughs> you, you see the landing strip up here? They were all over that earlier, but I see a few more landing strips out there, so thank you, all you bald guys, thank you, all right? We need to unite. So here we are with our three foundational things, consistently elevating virtues above feelings, making God look great, and training to be a blessing to others. Now, all three of those things now are the foundation that we build these nine practices upon, and we're going to dole out the nine practices as we go. I'm going to share with you one of the nine practices tonight. It's a great illustration. Next on the list is this. I call it the character progression. And uh, when you're first born, not a lot is required of you, right? All that's required of you is to really be obedient. Um, you're very dependent on your surroundings. And so uh, that's why obedience is so important for little children. But pretty soon you want little bits of responsibility. So as you start to grow, we ask you to put your toys away and clean your room and dress yourself. And then as you get a little bit older, you want more responsibility. So we say go out and mow the lawn and... And then we give you keys to a car, and then we give you a cell phone, and we give you lots of bigger responsibilities, things you can get into trouble with, and that's a wonderful progression. You know, we start out with obedience according to the Word of God, and that leads to responsibility, and as you get rewarded for more and better responsibilities, eventually you grow into a place that's called taking ownership. So obedience leads to responsibility, responsibility leads to ownership. It's really a beautiful thing according to the Word of God. But there is a parallel universe to the one I just described. Because uh, every once in a while, a parent will come up to me at a, a parenting conference and they'll say, Steve, what's the big deal about obedience? Why are you so high on your kids being obedient? And then they, they make an excuse. They go, oh, it's because you're a military guy. All you military guys are big on obedience. This has nothing to do with being in the military. This has everything to do with the Word of God. Because right? here's why. If you allow disobedience in the life of your child, and by the way, if you allow it, you're rewarding it. If they get the same rewards that an obedient child would get, for their disobedience, then you're actually rewarding their disobedience. And if you want more of a certain behavior, just reward it. You'll get more of it. And so if you're wondering where all of the disobedience is coming from your children, mom and dad, back it up to this. What are you rewarding? Are you punishing their disobedience or are you in fact rewarding their disobedience? Have they worn you down? Okay? That's part of it. But, you know, if you reward their disobedience and then you start to give them little responsibilities, put your toys away, dress yourself, mow the lawn, take the garbage out, and, and they just simply don't do it, and you get tired and you do it for them. Now, moms, I, I know something you know. I know this. I know that you can make their room better and faster than they can. Right? I know you can put their toys away better and faster than they can. Don't do it. All right? Don't do it. Why? Because it, t- it robs them of the character development that comes with you insisting that they do it. I know it's more work up front for you to get them to do it, and they'll probably do a terrible job at first. That's okay. Do the hard work up front so that you don't have to do the painful work later on. Dr. Dobson used to say, bring me your three-year-old and I can do something for you. Bring me your 15-year-old and I'll pray with you. And I don't mean to be discouraging to you if you've got a troubled teen, but you know as well as I do, it's more work at that age than it was when they were younger. And they can bring a lot more pain into your life when when they were younger. So with that in mind, if you allow disobedience and then you reward irresponsibility, you'll eventually end up in a place called entitlement. And that's the world we live in today. We live in an entitlement culture. 
Do you ever wonder why so many people are so entitled? Because they grew up in a home where disobedience was rewarded, irresponsibility was rewarded, and so why wouldn't they grow up to believe they're entitled? I have great compassion for them. That's not an excuse. It doesn't make it okay. I simply know where it comes from. Mom and Dad, you and I have hard work to do. That's why the Bible says don't grow weary of doing well. All right, Because our job is a hard job. It's not impossible, but it takes some effort uh, to do it right. All right. So now, with that all being said, I want to skip down to the bottom now, and I want to share with you an illustration that really is very powerful. And I want, I'm a guy that's got to see it. All right. I can, uh, as a pilot, when I would go to, to school and I would study something, I was okay at the school stuff. When I finally got into the airplane and put my hands on it, I was like, oh, that's it. That's what it looks like. I can touch it and feel it. So I've got to see it. Many of you are like me. All right. So this illustration is great for those of you who have to see things. But let me ask you a question to start out with. In a, in a 24-hour day, how many um, decisions do you think you make every day? Anybody got a guess? 10,000. More? More? Keep going. How many? A billion. Oh, not a billion. No, less than a billion. Somewhere between 10,000 and a billion. That's good. All right, so you make, here we go, you make 35,000 decisions a day. Now, I don't know who went around counting, but I actually, I actually did read the study where this came from, and, and I believe it, all right? Because, and so, at this point in the day, you're probably at about 31,500. Right? You're getting pretty tired. That's why we're tired when we go to bed at night. 35,000 decisions a day. And in each one of those 35,000 decisions, we're going we're gonna to respond in one of two directions. We're either going to respond reactively or proactively. So now we're going to look at reactive and proactive decision-making as it comes to parenting, as it comes to our walk with Christ, as it comes to the decision-making process 35,000 times a day. Now, next question. You're driving down the road and you see apples on a tree. What kind of tree is it? Wow. It's like hesitation. Okay. This is not a trick question. All right. Let me put it a different way. You're driving down the road and you see pears on a tree. What kind of tree is it? A pear pear tree, right? You know a tree by its? It's fruit. You know people by what? The fruit. Same thing. The stuff that's hanging on the outside. Well, what is that? That's their words, their choices, their deeds, their actions, their behavior. The stuff that comes out is indicative of what's going on on the inside, right? Just like that apple tree. Now, that little apple tree can't deny its little apple DNA. It must produce apples. It has no other choice. But we're not trees. We're here with trees, but we're not trees. We're a little bit different. In fact, our character DNA is not only instructed, but it's commanded to change. Am I right? And so, uh, be ye holy, for I am what? Holy. Don't be conformed to this world, but be what? transformed, right? Uh, In Romans 8, 28 and 29, God predestined a plan. What was that plan? That we would become conformed to the image of His Son. So with all of that in mind, the only constant we really have in life is change. God wants us to be changing to be more like His Son. So what does that look like? So let me share with you this illustration. I'm going to draw up my two little stick figure trees here. And uh, hopefully we got enough light to see them. If not, just imagine that there's two trees here. Okay, now, for those of you who are older, children of the 1960s, um, these are not nuclear explosions. They're actually trees. Okay, so don't, don't hide under the benches. Now, all right, I'm going to write the word, I'm gonna write the word reactive over here. Highly reactive people have a certain type of fruit. All right, so give me, uh, think of the most reactive person you work with, right? And give me some, I'll get you started out. Uh, there's a high degree of anger here. Okay, 
and just shout it out. What are the things you see from highly reactive people? They're impatient, right? I'm going to write that up here. Okay, what else? Yeah, they're, they're distrustful. Okay, that's a good one. I like the impulsive. Right? What else? Fearful? Okay. Uh, yep. Good. They're stressed out, right? Now, we all have stress, but they've, they've turned it into an art form. Right? This person, it's very manipulative for them. Um, they're very critical. Right? It's so easy to be critical these days. Yeah, manipulative. I can't spell it, but it, it belongs up here. <laughs> so if I can't spell it, it just, it just doesn't go up here. Right? So... Right, so manipulative, you know, all these things, uh, critical. You know, we live in this, this world where it's so easy to be critical. It's a cynical world. That's another one that belongs up there. The cynicism really is the, the disease of our age. The cup is kind of half empty uh, all the time. And, and, uh, and so this person is full of expectations. Okay? Now, what do I mean by expectations? Expectations are nasty little things. They'll, they'll pop up with no notice, and they'll ruin your marriage. They'll ruin your month. They'll ruin your whole life. And uh, I can't tell you how many couples came into the counseling office with just a mountain of expectations for one another. And uh, to illustrate my point, I, I took Mrs. Scheibner out, the fair and lovely Mrs. Scheibner. Uh, a while ago, I took her out uh, uh, to shopping uh, one evening. And I'm a big spender, so we went to Walmart. Okay? <laughs> and uh, we bought about half the store that evening. So, I'm trying to be a gentleman. We get home and I say, honey, I'll, I'll, I'll bring all the stuff in. Just help me get loaded up. I'm also a man. So, I'm, gonna, I'm a little lazy. So, I'm going to try to do it in one trip, right? And uh, kids, don't listen to this. Don't do that. Okay. But, so, we had exactly ten of those little plastic shopping bags. So, Mrs. Scheibner laced up each one of my fingers with a shopping bag. But now, under the weight of all this, I'm all bent over like an old pack mule. And I'm... <laughs> As she's about 10 steps ahead of me, headed towards the front door, and as she's headed towards the front door, I'm building an expectation. What's my expectation, class? Yeah, she's going to open the door, right? Now, is there anything wrong with that expectation? No, nothing. But here's, here's the dirty little secret about expectations. Are you ready? We keep them to ourselves, right? And we're going to play that little game. If you love me, you'll know, right? Now, I, I got a question. I told you I was riddled with ADD earlier. Is that the paparazzi flying around? <laughs> they probably can't get good pictures through the trees. That's good. Good planning, Pastor. Thank you. Okay. So, at any rate, so, so she, we're going to see how she does with this, this little quiz, right? So she goes up to the door and slam, the door goes shut, and immediately all this impatient, angry, impulsive, disturbed, stressful, it all starts popping out, right? Oh, was I upset? So there's three or four steps up to our landing. I schlep up those steps with the bags. And I look through the, the window of our door. And I see her. She's leaned over the kitchen counter. And she's watching my children in the living room who are watching cartoons on the TV. This woman needs to come back and get me. Oh, was I upset? So I start banging on the door. Now, I don't bang on the door with the part of the body that was made for it, like my fist or my foot or anything. Remember, I'm all bent over like an old pack mule. What's closest to the door? The pastoral noggin. All right? So I start banging on the door with my head, which, by the way, hurt. <laughs> but I'm in that moment, right? So I'm banging on the door, and she never comes back. It took her like two minutes to come back to the door. Boy, my head hurt. And she finally comes back, and she's greeted by this little bit of fruit here. All right? Sarcasm. 
I said, you know, they name roads after people like you. She said, what do you mean? I said, one way. <laughs> and now the fight was on, right? Mrs. Scheibner and I duked it out all afternoon. Boy, what a miserable day that was. Now, of course, I get the rest of the story when she comes back to the door, which is typical of me. And she had opened the door. She heard a scream from the living room. A 15-year-old in our living room is standing there on our carpeted floor with a nosebleed. My wife says, get off the carpet. She says, but my nose is bleeding. I can see that. Get off the carpet, but my nose is bleeding. I know you know. Get off the carpet, but my nose, nose, carpet, nose, carpet, nose, carpet. Back and forth, the two of them go. Finally, my wife says to the nosebleeder, are your feet broken? No. Get off the carpet. <laughs> now, don't, don't think we're bad parents. But it's hard to get blood out of the carpet. So she gets her over there, tends to the bloody nose, and then she comes back to the door, and she's greeted by Mr. Wonderful at the door, right? And she didn't deserve that at all, and it was, it was a miserable day. It's a funny story, but it, it wasn't a funny day. It was actually a miserable day. Where'd all that come from? An expectation that was born out of a highly reactive nature. I just allowed myself all those luxuries. Almost lost my marriage over it, all right? Uh, it took me a long time to come to the, uh, a better way of thinking. Ultimately, this person is a finger-pointing blame assessor. They love to point a finger of blame at everybody else except who? Themselves. It's always somebody else's fault. Now, that's a pretty ugly tree. Let's take a look at this one. I'm going to write the word proactive over here. Highly proactive people have a different type of fruit. And we can kind of key off of what we see over here. If this person is angry, this person is loving, or you might even say joyful. If this person is uh, impulsive, this person is maybe peaceful. All right? If this person is impatient, this one is what? Okay, patient. Do you see a Bible verse popping out yet? What is it? Galatians 5, 22 and 23, right? It's the fruit of the Spirit. So here's what we were doing just now. We were actually exegeting a passage of Scripture. You just didn't know it. I didn't say, turn in your Bible to, and now we're gonna, everything's going to start with the letter P. I didn't do it that way. We did it backwards. We looked at what it looks like, and now we know where we are. So I'm going to write that up here, Galatians 5.22. And this over here is Galatians 5.19. The deeds of the flesh. So let's finish out our fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, what? Kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, good. I'm just abbreviating. At the end of that list is self-control. The world would be a better place if we all just had a little more self-control. Right? Maybe that's what I'll ask Donald Trump when I see him. He would do, he'd be doing a lot better if somebody just got that thing out of his hands. A little more self-control. Just breathe, count to ten, breathe, and then don't say it. Okay, so, uh, but you know what? Every positive character quality we can think of belongs up here. Uh, humility, courage, respect. I'm going to write one up here. Watch this. Success. Give me a 21st century American definition of success. What do you need to be successful these days? Money, money, money. That's four or five. Okay. What else? Power. Influence. Uh, the stuff that goes with it, right? I mean, you're getting a picture. 
And so we many times are that that's we're inundated with that. You're not successful unless you have all those things. Now, if I uh, the, the most successful man that ever walked the face of the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason we're sitting out here enduring the bugs is why? The Lord Jesus Christ, right? And so, the most successful man that ever walked the face of the earth is Jesus. Give me some words that describe Jesus. He was humble. What else? He was a suffering servant, wasn't he? Yeah, what else? Loving, compassionate, courageous. Isaiah called him a man of what? Sorrows. He was afflicted in every way possible. He was crucified. You know, he... And, and so, any of those things make your top five or top ten of American success in the 21st century? Not a one, right? If we had a, a seven-year-old, brought a random seven-year-old up here and said, Hey, son, what do, you, what do you want to be when you grow up? We'd expect him to say, Well, I'd like to be, to be a doctor or a lawyer or a fireman or a policeman, some, some job. What if that seven-year-old said, well, well, thank you, Dr. Steve. I've been thinking about that for a long time. And I, I would think I, I would love to be afflicted in every way possible. And, and if I could be a man of sorrows, that would really be choice. And uh, if I could be a servant, no, wait a minute, a suffering servant, that would even be better. And at first, we would do that nervous little giggle like you just did. But once you got the impression that that young child meant it, you probably shed a tear. Because that's exactly what that young child should want to be. Am I right about that? Desiring the character qualities of Jesus is the first and most important foundational thing that we can do. That's why Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first what? His kingdom and His righteousness and all this other stuff will take care of itself. That's my paraphrase. All this other stuff will take care of itself. But mom and dad, we spend all of our time in the van going from one event to another. What? Building up a 21st century American portfolio resume of success. And many times we do it at the sacrifice of character development. We're seeking after all the other stuff and hoping the character comes down. And it doesn't work that way. We got it backwards. Ultimately, this person is a problem solver. A problem solver. Is there any shortage of problems in your family? There's no shortage in mine. If I didn't say it to begin with, I want to say it right now. Uh, Stephen and Megan to travel around the country as parenting experts. Right? Um, we want to come to you out of a position of humility. Uh, we haven't arrived... We're not the perfect parents. We're not even close. We've probably made more blunders than we've been successful at. But I really believe you learn more, as much or more from your failures as you do from your successes. Am I right about that? Okay. And we've got lots of problems in our family. But like your family, there's a shortage of problem solvers. Lots of problems, but a shortage of problem solvers. Now I want to leave us with this thought before we go off to our next thing. Before we make any other application tonight, or tomorrow, or for the rest of our lives, I want you to look at these two trees. And I want to ask you a question. Which one of those two trees best describes you?
And I know that's a tough question. The answer I get most often is this. Well, Steve, I'm a little bit of both. And I totally get that. I totally understand that. That's where the book of James enters the question. Because James says the double-minded man is what? He's unstable in some of his ways. Oh, all of his ways. So it's not okay to say to God, God, you just got to leave me alone. I'm a little bit of both. Some days I'm like this and some days I'm like that. God's saying no. It's not okay. It's not okay for you to camp over here a little bit and camp over here a little bit. I don't want you to be that double-minded person that's unstable in all of his ways. There's another generation that's coming behind you. They need to see you working and striving at being that positive, proactive, problem-solving, fruit-of-the-spirit believer out of Galatians 5.22. This is not an impossible goal for us. God doesn't lay out an ideal for us and then just set us adrift and say, figure it out on your own. God lays out for us in His Word what He would like us to be, and He's absolutely aching for us to become that positive, proactive, fruit-of-the-spirit believer. And if God is for us, hey, that's pretty good. There's lots of bad news out there. That's pretty good news. You know, at the end of the day, we're bound for heaven. I read the, I read the end of the book. I read the last chapter. We win. We do. We're bound for heaven. There's nothing on this earth that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Am I right about that? So if there's anybody that should have a smile on their face, it's us. You'd be surprised. We look like some of the most gloomiest people you ever saw. I think we watch too much TV and too little Bible. But with that in mind, God's aching for us to be this person. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So my friends... As you're looking at this, there's a lot of conviction in these two trees. I get it. There are no books written on how to become highly reactive. (laughs) Because it's what comes naturally to us. There are tens of thousands of books written on how to become a proactive, problem-solving, fruit-of-the-spirit believer. Why? Because it's work. We've got to strive to be that person. But God is aching to come alongside and help us. But we've got to be participants in what he's doing. How do we do that? By elevating virtues above feelings, by making God look great, and by uh, training to be a blessing to others. That's a good start. Plenty to work on for one evening. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the privilege of looking into your word and seeing what it looks like and reflecting upon us. James says that there are many, myself included, that many times look into the word of God and We see our own reflection and then we turn away and immediately forget what we look like. We need to let the Word of God penetrate our lives, our hearts, get beyond the surface so that we look at an illustration like this and and we just kind of melt on the inside and go, Lord, I want to be that positive, proactive, fruit of the Spirit believer and I can hear myself, I can hear what I said yesterday, I can hear what I said this morning, Lord, forgive me and help me to make strides to be that person. Lord, open my ears and my heart for the next 18 hours. Maybe, Lord, you've got more for me. You're going to show me what that next step is. Father, thank you for this very first step of kind of opening our hearts. And now, Lord, I pray that you'd begin to to fill it in with more of your word. We pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.